Welcome to the Faith Assembly Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Tonight, we are going to pick up where we left off uh, a few weeks ago. We started talking about some of the spiritual disciplines. And I feel like we are going to continue to do this on, on Wednesday nights because there are some certain things that when we really dive into the Word of God become very clear to us and things that often we've known about for our entire walks as Christians, but it always is a good idea to come back to the basics, to come back and to see some of the things that God has called us to do. And so a few weeks ago, we talked about meditation, the act of not just reading the Word of God, and we spoke about this a little bit on Sunday as well, but taking the time to allow His Word to sink deep within us, to not just hear the word, but to allow it to come beyond our minds into our spirit so that it actually takes root and has an effect on our actions. So we have the meditation of the word. We have the reading and the study of the word. We have fasting, which is something that we're coming up on in the next couple of weeks as we are going to be taking part in a fast corporately as a church. And that is a little bit more of what we're going to talk about here tonight. But in all of these things, as we pursue God, we have to recognize that our why, our motivation, the reason why we're doing these things really matters. And I would say matters even more than the act of what we are doing. It's the motivation of our hearts as we are entering into these places to to see God in a different way, to hear his voice regardless of where we find ourselves in our lives at that moment. And tonight I want to start by kind of setting the foundation by looking at the book of Romans. And we're going to begin in Romans chapter 5. And I would just ask that you would stay with me as we build this foundational piece moving on to our, to our key verse here tonight. But Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 1, says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Every time I read this passage, I see something else and I just felt that, that pause at that word access. Through him we have also obtained access by faith. This theme of faith is what Paul is speaking about in the preceding chapter as he talks about the faith of Abraham that gave us access into the place of righteousness. We know that it says that in Abraham believed God, he had faith and it was counted to him as righteousness. But Paul goes on to say that the inheritance of faith was not just for Abraham and it was not just for his sake, but also for ours. The faith of our father Abraham, the father of many nations, the father that went before us has given us an inheritance of faith through his act of obedience. 
And faith is the very thing that opens the door to the grace on which we must stand, the grace that empowers us to become who we were called to become, to fulfill the identity that has been given to us through Jesus. This grace, however, is not just for the forgiveness of sins. Often we look at it in that way because that is an incredible part of this. It's not just the overwhelming gift that restores relationship between us and God, but it's also the very thing that empowers us to do what we've been called to do, to walk obedient to what God has called us to walk into. Now, this is a pretty amazing statement, and it's even more important when we look at verse 3, which shows us very definitively as if we weren't aware that this walk with God is not always going to be rainbows and unicorns. If you would excuse my, my terminology here. That this walk with God is not always going to be this easy thing from the moment that we say yes to Jesus, that everything from that point forward is just going to fall into place. We know the ultimate price has been paid. However, we need grace to continue to walk through the situations of life to walk through the times where things are going really well, but also the times where things are really difficult. Verse 3 says, Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. When I read this, I thought back to John sixteen thirty three, which is where Jesus says, In the world you will have trouble or tribulation, but fear not, for I have overcome the world. But still, there will be trouble. Still, there will be times where it is not quite so easy. But we have been given the grace that we need not to simply survive the difficult times, but to endure, to develop the character that we need to walk into the hope that God has promised to us. You see, grace is a multifaceted gift from God that empowers us to walk into our identities in Jesus. Romans chapter 6, verses 5 and 6 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him. I feel like in this message, I'm going to start asking you to repeat after me. Like old self, we've been given access, our, our old self, what used to be. We've been brought from our old self, which was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. It goes on in verses 10 and 11, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. This is the power of grace. This is what has been made available to each one of us through the person of Jesus. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This word consider in the Greek means to reason your way to a logical conclusion, 
and then to make a decision from it. To reason your way to a logical conclusion and then to do something about it. So when we consider ourselves dead to sin, when we come to a place through the Holy Spirit of understanding that when Jesus was crucified, that we were crucified through our acceptance of what he has done, through our repentance, through our acceptance of of him in our lives and in our hearts, we are now dead to sin. And when we can come to that conclusion, we must now do something differently than we did before. Consider yourself dead to sin. Now, sin is not going to consider itself dead to you. The old nature is not going to make it easy on us and say, oh yeah, I don't have any, any power in your life anymore. It is us that now have to look at sin and understand that it has been defeated. To consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. There are two parts of this. But I feel that sometimes in Christianity, we take half of the equation and we still try to get to the result that we're looking for. We have to consider ourselves dead to sin, and that's really good. But unless we consider ourselves then alive in Christ, we're only dealing with half of the equation. We're fighting half the battle. It's through grace that we can consider ourselves that that is the conclusion we come to, dead to sin, but now alive in Jesus. This grace we have been given means we have a new nature, a new way of thinking, a new way of reasoning, and now a new way of behaving. Romans chapter 6 verse 14 says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This becomes a major theme of this entire letter, grace through faith and not by works. It continues to say in verses 16 through 18, and this is where we're going to camp out here tonight. Do you know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. All right, I am going to have you do it. Repeat after me. Slaves of righteousness. We are now slaves of righteousness in verse 19, leading to sanctification. Whoever you obey, that's who you become a slave to. So you have the option to either become a slave to the old nature and to sin, to whom we are now dead to through Jesus, or we can be slaves to righteousness that leads to sanctification. Now, I really do encourage you to read through the book of Romans. It is an incredible book where Paul lays out the gospel. From beginning to end, it's, it really is such an amazing book, and, and we will continue to read out of that in the weeks to come. But tonight, I, I want to camp in uh, on this one verse, because I feel like out of this verse, there is a lot to be seen in regards to the disciplines that we are in pursuit of. So when we look at this principle of grace, 
once again, we do so often with the focus of the relationship that we now have with sin, and this is a huge facet of it. To know we've been given forgiveness that we did not deserve, it is a foundational piece of our salvation. We do recognize that grace did not and could never come from the law whose purpose, as Paul goes on to say in chapter 7, verse 7, was to show us that we were unable to keep the law. It could never come from our own ability, from our own self-righteousness, from our own works. It had to come from Jesus. And we talked about that grace allows us to go through and endure suffering. But tonight I want to look at verse 17, which is very closely connected to these other points, but it says something that really stood out to me as I was reading through this chapter. It says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. The NIV says you have come to obey from your heart the teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. Now this is significant because it shows us the change that takes place in our nature when we receive Jesus into our hearts, when we begin to think about our lives differently, when we begin to see the fullness of what Jesus has done. At one time, before we understood what grace was, before we understood who Jesus was, our obedience did not come out of relationship, but instead our, our obedience came out of fear. Before we understood what grace was, our obedience came out of fear or self-righteousness, came out of self-reliance. It came out of a, a variety of things which all pointed back to us instead of Jesus. And much like little children who obey, and I say obey like theoretically, because we have two little children, and obedience is not always their, their strong suit. Joel agrees with me here tonight. They obey because of the fear of punishment. If I do this thing, then things are going to go well for me. But if I don't do this thing, or if I do this thing I'm not supposed to, well, then there's going to be consequences. This is why children obey. But 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 says that there is no fear in love... But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So you would agree with me tonight that being obedient based out of fear is not God's best for us. To be obedient based out of the consequences of not being obedient, or based out of my desire to prove that I am good enough on my own, my desire to once again rely on my own flesh, to do what Adam and Eve did and to go to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that is the old nature and this is not what God has for us. But now through grace, we have the ability to walk in a different motivation. And what it specifically says in this verse is that you have become obedient from the heart. You have become obedient from the heart. Not out of fear, 
not out of obedience to the law, but you have now become obedient from the heart. I think to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, and this is where the author of Hebrews is quoting Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, 33. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. There's a difference here. There's a difference in the way that we treat our actions, the way we treat sin, and the way that we treat obedience to God. We're not doing it out of obedience to the law. We're doing it out of obedience from our heart because God has written his laws on our heart. It's no longer based off of things that have been written and maybe added to as the Pharisees did to the law, but it is now out of what God has placed inside of us through what the Holy Spirit has spoken to us, we are now obedient to something that is much deeper, much bigger, much more powerful than anything that could have ever been written before because it is now through the Holy Spirit and obedience to his leading and guidance in our lives. So where we used to obey from fear or from a sense of self-righteousness that comes from our own effort, we are now called to walk in obedience Not from our minds, not from our will, but from a place that originates out of the love of God, out of the understanding of a perfect father, out of a relationship with the God who created us, knows us, and loves us deeply and intimately. Now, I know that most of us would agree with that statement, hopefully all of us. But I also know that from firsthand experience, this is not always how we walk through life. There are times that even though we live under grace in the New Testament, even though we grasp certain elements of the power of grace, we often fall back into the old way of doing things through our own effort, through our own ability, and coming back into subjection to the law. This tends to be human nature, that we keep going back to our own ability, that we keep connecting back to that old nature, but we know this is not who we're meant to be. This is not who we're called to be anymore, because now when we are walking in obedience from our hearts, we are looking back to what the Holy Spirit has said. We're recognizing that there is something that is better for us. There is something that has been made available to us. And when we understand this, this is where meditation comes in. This is where the study of the word comes back in. When we look at this and we don't try to just understand it on a knowledge level or on a head level, but we allow the Holy Spirit to speak deep within us, that's when things start to change. I don't know if anybody else in this room tonight needs the Holy Spirit to continually speak this into you, but I can say for me, myself, for my mentality, the way that I often gravitate back to the old nature, I need to have a fresh revelation on a continual basis of what his grace actually means in our lives. It is not by our own ability. It's not through our own effort. It is through reliance on the Holy Spirit. 
Because without that, what are we doing that is any different than the rest of the world? If we're not relying on the Holy Spirit, if we're not relying on the power of our God, the same power that rose Christ Jesus from the dead, then we are, we are operating out of a, a limited version of what we've been made to be. And yet, once again, we're still expecting all the things that God has for us, but we're still doing it in our own effort and never actually reaching the places that we expect to or, or maybe that we hope to. And I guess maybe what happens after that is when it doesn't happen, then we get frustrated and we start to expect less out of our relationship with God. Because we've tried it on our own, we've called it God, and then when it didn't happen, we've lessened our expectations. This is not who we're called to be. It says, to live according to the standard of the teaching to which you were committed. All right, so the first part of this verse says, you have become obedient from the heart. And now it says that you're supposed to move from obedience of the heart to something. Once again, there are two parts of this equation. To move from the obedience of the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed or to which you have given your allegiance to. You guys see this? There's a movement here. It's not just that we're obedient. It's that when we are obedient according to the Spirit, that we move from a place of an old reality to a new reality, which, as it says here, is to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. I love this word standard. This word standard talks to, to an expectation, to a level that has been set by God. There is a standard. A standard is, when we look at the definition, it's equated to a unit of measure. If you take out a ruler and I take out a ruler, who knows that the inch that is on my ruler should be the same as the inch that is on your ruler? Yes? A foot should be a foot. A centimeter should be a centimeter. If not, we're all going to develop some pretty big trust issues because there is a standard of what an inch should be. There is a standard of what truth should be. There is a standard of what God expects from his children. But when we're doing things in our own effort, the standard tends to get lowered. It tends to be diminished, and now we are living according to a lesser standard. But when we understand that there is an obedience that comes from our heart that has been connected with our Father, we live now according to a standard that has been set by our Heavenly Father. To the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness, leading to sanctification. This understanding, this implementation of grace, is not just so we can live in freedom from sin, although that is amazing. It's not just so that we can live in freedom from sin. It is now that we can move to a place of living according to a new standard. We have to get both sides of this. In the old standard, the old covenant, it was in the flesh. But now that's been done away with so that we being redeemed by the blood of Jesus could uphold, live out, and walk in a new standard, becoming slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. 
You see, Jesus was never content with paying the ultimate sacrifice to pulling us out of an old reality of reliance on ourselves, an old reality bearing the weight of sin and shame, to move us into this weird in-between realm where we have an expectation of something greater, but we're still relying on ourselves. He didn't pay the ultimate price so that we could simply recognize that he paid for sin and now for us to move into this place where we still think that we're the ones who have to make it work. Where we still feel a lot of the things from the past, we just know that Jesus loves us. He paid the ultimate price so that we would move into a pursuit of a new reality that is very attainable through him. He moved us from a place of the old where we thought we had to do it to a place of a very new reality where we understand that he's already done it. He's already paid the price. But I don't know about you, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I don't know how many of you actually feel like you're in the middle sometimes. I have felt this feeling of being in the middle sometimes. I know Jesus loves me, but this future that is promised to me feels so unattainable. Okay, it's just me. That's fine. This is often how we live. And the results of this are widespread in our lives. The results of this very often affect not just our relationship with God, but the way that we live life. It affects the way that we process situations. It affects the way that we we see ourselves and we see Him. And yes, it affects the spiritual disciplines. It affects why we do the things that we do. Why we're being obedient to reading the Bible, to praying, to spending time with God, to studying, to fasting, to tithing. All of these things now fall into this weird in-between of understanding who God is, but yet still feeling like we have to have this element of self in there because we're not thinking according to the promise that has been placed on our hearts. We're still thinking according to our past, our own abilities, our inadequacies. And so then we approach these disciplines with an element of, I have to do this because God wants me to. I have to do this thing because this is part of being a good Christian. I have to do this thing because I have to check a box that I've done my due diligence today. When we operate in this old mentality, what happens is that these very biblical and life-giving disciplines become very will-based behaviors that we do out of obligation instead of what they were intended to be. I look at tithing and I think of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, where Paul says, Each one must give as he has decided, where? In his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. What is more important to God? That you give or that you give according to your understanding of who he is? What's more important? The action. Now, trust me, I want everyone to tithe. 
Okay? I have a vested interest in this. However, this is very clear that if you give, it must be out of a place of a cheerful heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Because to God, who doesn't look at the outward appearance, he looks at the heart. He's not looking so much at the action. Saul gave a sacrifice that he wasn't supposed to give, and God was very upset about this. But when we do things out of our own ability to check a box, it doesn't mean that it's bad. I'm never going to say reading our Bible is bad. But if we're doing so out of obligation, instead of understanding that we're building a relationship with the Creator, we have our priorities out of alignment. The spiritual disciplines need to be out of a place of understanding our relationship with Him. We have to move from a place of self-reliance to a significance that is fe- excuse me, found in the heart of God. So, Tonight I do want to look at fasting, just briefly. We don't have time to go really in depth on this topic here tonight, but we are going to be stepping into this time of fasting together. And to me, of all of the disciplines, this seems to be the one that if I'm going to go into self-reliance, it's this one. It's the one that requires the most of me simply because of how much I love food. It's the one that requires the most out of me because the second that you tell me that I am not going to eat something, I instantly become the most hungry human being on the face of the planet. And so in stepping into a place of fasting, it's very easy to do away with the the act of spending time with God and just trying to distract myself away from the hunger that I'm feeling. I don't know if anyone else has ever felt this way. Fasting is an act of obedience to God. But as soon as we remove him from the equation, it becomes something else entirely. It becomes self-deprivation. And sometimes that's not such a bad thing. Sometimes we just have to say no to ourselves. Has anyone ever practiced that before? Like, I want this thing and I'm just going to say no to myself just to see if I can do it. I don't know if you guys have the same success rate that I do. Not always very good. I think that Bill Johnson said that fasting without the spiritual element of this is is just a diet. And that's the truth. That's what it is. So the question I want to answer tonight, first of all, is should we fast? And so I want to just look at Matthew chapter 6 quickly. Jesus said in verse 16, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. There's a lot to be taking out of this verse, but what I want to look at tonight is the first three words. When you fast. Not if you fast, not if you think fasting is a good idea, when you fast, when you take the time to engage in this spiritual discipline, this is how I want you to handle it. We know that Jesus himself fasted. We see this when he's tempted in the, in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He fasts. We see this interaction between him and Satan in verse Four of chapter 4, he said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Jesus fasted. He often separated himself away. We see in Mark chapter 9, verse 29, the disciples, they go to cast the demon out of the the young boy and, and they're unable to. Jesus comes and does exactly that. And they ask the question, why couldn't we do it? And he said to them, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. Meaning that at that point, he was already operating in the discipline of fasting. This is something that Jesus did. We see this in Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and 3. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying some more, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Fasting is very much a spiritual discipline that we have been given in order to give us an opportunity, yes, to say no to ourselves and to say yes to him, but to be able to engage in a deeper level of relationship and intimacy with him. Fasting, though, must be spirit-led. It must be God-ordained and spirit-led. It has to be something that we know he's calling us to do and something that we are being led by the Spirit. That is the most important part of it. From the time that we fast to what we are fasting, we have to realize that this is not done to simply deprive our flesh, but to seek God. It must come from our hearts out of an understanding that we have an opportunity to give him something that costs us something. That, to me, is a really important element of this. There's so much of our spiritual walk that is done in order to be able to say, God, whether it's worship where we say, you know, I'm going to be able to worship you for eternity, but when I do it here on earth, it costs me something. It it requires something of me. There is something to it when we are saying yes to him on that deeper level. And when we fast, we do it through his grace. When we fast, we do it out of the place of obedience from our hearts. We don't do it as a a matter of sheer willpower. We don't do it as a test to see if we can. We do it because we are saying, God, I, I want to do this. Will you give me the strength that I need to be able to do this? I want to pray. I want to seek your face. And I am expecting that you are going to meet me here in this place. Richard Foster said, uh, out of the celebration of discipline, he said that we can expect an increased effectiveness in intercessory prayer, guidance in decisions, increased concentration, deliverance for those in bondage, physical well-being, revelations, and so on, because God said that he was the one who rewards those who diligently seek him. And that is what we're doing in fasting. We are diligently seeking him. And it's not only this, but it's the revelation that comes up inside of us during a fast that can also be very beneficial. I'm going to start to bring this to a close, but I don't know about you. When I, anytime I've been a part of a fast, I'm not always the most pleasant person to be around. There tends to be this irritability that comes up in those moments. And can I suggest that maybe what's coming up in those moments is not simply like the Snickers commercial, where it says you're, you're not you when you're hungry? 
I think the truth is that you become who you really are when you start to lose some of the, the human ability to comfort yourself and to be satisfied with something like food or whatever it is that you're choosing to let go of. It's important for us to understand who we really are when we're not comfortable. I don't know about you, again, if you've ever been in a stressful situation, what comes out of you is more often who you really are instead of the polished version that you want to give to everyone around you. So I want to say in a time of a fast, be aware of what comes up and then don't distract yourself away from it. But be willing to look at what's coming up so that the Holy Spirit can address what's really going on. So that way when we go into the situations where there will be trouble or where there will be suffering, we know what we're going to find. We're going to find who He has made us to be. Times of fasting do require something of us, but the benefit that comes out of it The time that we can come together as the body of Christ and to make this decision together. And once again, we're not just doing this as our church. We're joining with other churches in our section, in our, in our neighborhood, in our community to be able to seek God, to be able to desire to hear from Him on a deeper level, to seek revelation, to seek breakthrough in situations that we're facing, to be able to prepare ourselves for things that are coming that we don't even know, that we couldn't even expect with our human reasoning. The ability to do this together is a great blessing. And it's one that I want to ask that we would do together. But more than anything else, would we do it with an understanding of the grace made available to us? Would we do it with our focus on the Holy Spirit? Would we do it asking for the strength that we need, the wisdom that we need, and yes, to expect that our perfect Father is going to honor the decisions that we're making and to be able to bring back to us the answers to the prayers that we're praying, the preparation that we need?